The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. I, uh, you have to excuse me this morning if I fumble a little bit. I'm not used to getting up in time to be somewhere at 4.30 in the morning uh, to see the kids off, but it was great. I wish you could have all been here. Uh, this morning as they were getting ready to leave, there's nothing more exciting than to see a bunch of kids excited about doing what Jesus has called them to do. Amen? Uh, I think about that and I think, man, we are, uh, we're blessed here with the student ministry that we have. And boy, not just having a student ministry, but the kids, you guys are solid. You're great. And to see you loving Jesus and pursuing Him, and, and then to think about Central Kids next week. And I was praying this morning for that group of kids, and there's so many that are in that young 8, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10, that, man, they just love Jesus. And they're, I'm excited for what God is going to do. Is anybody excited about what the Lord has in store? Uh, not only right now, but in the future. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. Last week, uh, we took some time uh, looking at the book of James, and we realized that, that James, really three different times, James talks about trials and suffering. And we concluded last week that every one of us in this room have been through some type of trial or suffering in our lives. Uh, and if you haven't yet, hold on, because you are going to, Right? And there are some of us that are going through some situations right now. And last week in chapter 3, we looked at James told us, that, listen, when we're suffering trials and when we're going through suffering, we need to ask not only why, that's the first question, God, why am I going through this? But the next question we need to ask is what? What is it that you want to teach me through this trial? What are you showing me? What are you wanting to do? Most importantly, in my heart and in my life as a Christ follower through this trial. Well, this week, we're going to look at what he tells us in chapter 5, talking about trials. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever uh, gone through a trial, rough spot, suffered in your life as a result of what someone else has done to you? Wow, a lot of us. Uh, and if you didn't raise your hand, most likely you're going to suffer that kind of trial in your life based on what somebody does to you, of nothing of your own doing. And that's the specific area that we're going to look at this morning because James is talking to a group of believers as he's writing. They are suffering at the hands in this particular instance, at the hands of the wealthy. He starts this in the early part of the chapter where the wealthy had really exploited those who had no power, no voice of their own, and they made them work in their fields, and they got to be fat cats. They got wealthy off of what these individuals were doing, and they didn't share with them, and they were suffering as a result of that. And James says, hey, wait a minute, just hold on. God's going to take care of that, and he already has begun to bring judgment. But now I want to speak to you, he says, as you're going through this suffering in your life, as a result of what somebody else has done to you. And so he begins writing here in verse 7, and the first thing he tells them is to be patient. As a matter of fact, he's going to use this word four times in these short verses, to be patient. How many of you like patience? How many of you are praying for patience right now in your life? That's a dumb prayer. Can I tell you that? Okay. Um, because he'll answer your prayer. 
But he tells them, listen, be patient right now. Looking back because you're suffering at the hands of others, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, in that day, they thought the coming of the Lord was imminent, just like we do today. By the way, there's, there's this phrase that he talks about until the coming of the Lord is repeated two times in this phrase. And he's reminding us that, yes, Jesus is going to come again. We believe that doctrine, we hold on to that doctrine, but oftentimes, if you're like me, we live our lives not really showing that we believe that Jesus could return at any moment, right? I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, I used to hear that about every Sunday. They seemed to have preached it a lot more back then, but it was, it was used to kind of keep me on the straight and narrow because I didn't want Jesus to return while I was doing something I shouldn't be doing, right? And I think they did a movie about that in, during that day, but, but that is true. But he's telling us, listen, in the midst of life, in the midst of suffering at the hands of others, and in the midst of just trials that come in life, because life has trials, right? Somebody said you can sum all of life up this way, and that's trials. Jesus said, hey, don't be shocked. Because you'll have trials and tribulation in this world. It's a fact. It's a given thing. And so James is reminding us, listen, look forward to the hope that we have that all of that is going to be gone one day when Jesus returns. But in the meantime, he wants to tell them this. To, to rest assured, be patient in this. And then he uses as an example of what this patience looks like. But he tells them in verse 7, he says, uh, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. I don't know how many of you may have gardens right now that you have vegetable gardens. I grew up on a small little farm in North Newton County, and every year we planted a garden. And I can assure you this. We never planted a garden without an expectation of a harvest, right? I mean, nobody with any sense puts all the work and labor into tilling the ground, uh, making the rows, putting in the seeds and fertilizing and weeding it as often as you do without some expectation that there's going to be a return on this. And so he's saying, listen, consider the farmer. Because a farmer plants with an expectation of a harvest. And you as well understand and realize that patience is necessary through this trial. Because there will be an end to it and there will be a harvest at the end of it. And then he says the farmer considers the former and the latter rain. Now that's a phrase that wouldn't be familiar to us. But to a farmer in Palestine they would have fully understood that. Because the former rains, the early rains, came sometime around October or November. And it was during that former time of the rain that the farmer knew that that was the time to put the seed in the ground. To get everything ready because there was a latter rain in the April time of the year. That when that rain came, that it was the fullness of the of the growth of the plant, and the harvest was ready to be harvested. But it was necessary that the former rain and the latter rain come before you begin to harvest. And so the lesson that he's saying in that is this. 
that in life, in the midst of a trial and a suffering period of time, there is the former rain. There's, there's a time when that thing starts. And we look forward to the latter rain, but if we're not careful and we go into the garden and we try to harvest before the latter rains have come, we're not going to get a good harvest. And what he's saying is that in our lives, there is a period and there's a time to trial and suffering. And just like the farmer knows that the full cycle has to take place, you and I need to know that the full cycle has to take place. Because if you're like me and you come into trial and suffering, you try to put matters into your own hands and only mess it up, right? You see, the farmer recognized and realized through his own experience that when he tried to make the crop ready before it was ready to be harvested, it was not going to be a good crop. What's James saying in there? James is saying, listen, in your life, when you're facing a period or time of trial, wait on the former as well as the latter rain. Let God do His full work in and through you during this because He's got something that's going to be produced on the other side of it that you never could have produced on your own, right? You see, there's that season, if you will, that trial has to take place in our lives so that God may do what He's got to do. And in that, what I like to call that in-between time, if we don't allow God to do, and we immediately look for a way of escaping that, that period of time, checking out, if you will, taking matters into our own hands, rather than sitting and trusting God and waiting and being active in that time, we're going to mess up what God wants to do in our lives. I've come to this conclusion in life. I wish there were another way to grow in character, to grow in maturity, to grow in life other than trials, but it seems as though that's the greatest teacher in our lives of what God is wanting to do in us. You see, it's necessary. And I've come to realize and learn that it's in that in-between time that God is most concerned about. You know, we spend a lot of our lives looking back at the good old days, reminiscing the past, saying, wasn't it good then, and, and wasn't that so great then, especially when we're in the midst of a trial, I wish it could be like it was then, forgetting that back then we were going through some of the same junk we're still going through today, right? And so we spend life oftentimes looking back and say, I wish it were that way. Or we spend that time in the in-between time in trials looking and imagining and dreaming what we hope it's going to be like. And when we spend our time either looking back or just looking ahead, we're missing what God is doing in the in-between time. And what James is saying is, listen, wait. Wait with expectation and let God do the work in you that He wants to do. Oswald Chambers writes this about that in-between time. Listen to what he says. First of all, he says that God is not concerned about our plans. Don't you love that? God's not concerned about our plans. And, of course, what He intends to say there, what He means there, is God's concerned about His will, not our plans. He says, God's not concerned about our plans. He does not say, 
Do you want to go through this bereavement or this upset? Have any of you have ever gotten a letter from God where he said, Hey, JMO, do you want to go through the trial that I'm about to allow you to go through in your life? No. So he doesn't send us pre-notice and give us the prerogative of whether we want to go through it. But he says he allows these things for his own purpose. Sometimes I get the focus that life is all about me. And I forget that life is really not about me at all. It's all about him and his purposes. And for the believer, for the disciple, that's the attitude that he wants us to have. He says the things that we are going through are either making us sweeter, better, nobler men or women, or they are making us more fault-finding and critical, more insistent upon our way. Somebody said trials make us one or the other. They either make us better or they make us bitter. I've met people in life that have gone through various different trials, some major trials and some minor trials. And some of the ones, believers, that I run into that have the most negative perspective on life are those that in the midst of those trials and times, they did not allow God to do the work in them in the response to their trial, but they sat back and got bitter. But listen, God has something precious that He wants to work in and through our lives in the midst of through trials. He says, if we say, Thy will be done... We get the consolation from John chapter 17. And the consolation of knowing that our Father is working according to His wisdom in our lives. When we understand what God is after, we will not get mean and cynical. Jesus has prayed nothing less for us than than absolute oneness with Himself as He was one with the Father. You see, the thing that God is most concerned about in our lives is our fellowship and our relationship to Him. And the thing that God desires more in your life and in my life through the midst of trial is not that He's trying to figure out how to get us out of that. He's at work to bring us closer to Him in fellowship and relationship. I find that very often in my Christian life that when everything is going great, when everything's going fine, when there are no situations, no conflicts, no, you know, everything's just going good, I have a tendency, and maybe you're like I am, but I, I have a tendency to kind of drift away from my dependency and clinging to Him. And something comes along, and all of a sudden I'm like, God, I need you, right? But see, sometimes God allows trial in our life for one very specific reason, and that's so that we would draw near to Him and know Him more intimately and deeply. You see, I've learned through life that in those in-between times, during the midst of a trial, it's during that in-between time that it is necessary, number one, that I grow in character. I wish it were that character was just kind of caught, kind of by osmosis, right? But God is at work in our trials, developing us in our character. And the character He desires that we have would be a character that reflects His character and His nature. And so God is very concerned about growing us so that we might be conformed to Christ's image. You see, it's in the in-between time that God teaches us of His character. 
Having not had times in my life where there was lack of provision, I never would have understand that God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And you go through those periods of times where there seems to be no resource, whether it's through a loss of a job, or you graduated from high school and you're about to go off to college and mom and dad cut you off, right? But it's in that time that we see that God is our provider and we learn that. You see, we wouldn't understand that God is a God of peace until we've gone through a situation in our lives that there seems to be no peace. There's always constant turmoil, and we look to find peace in every other way, and we say, that does not bring me peace. And then all of a sudden, we have a peace and understanding that only comes from God, the Holy Spirit, that that's His nature and that's His character. You see, we don't understand that God is a God of love. Until we go through life circumstances where it seems as though everybody else is rejecting us, but we come to realize that the one who will never, ever, ever reject us is our loving Father. You see, and then we find a love that is the kind of love that can only hope us. It's in that between time that God uses to grow us in our faith and our trust in Him. our faith, and our trust in Him. Is God a God that we can trust? You see, we know that. We've learned that. We've been taught that. But it's until we're in the midst of a trial that He shows Himself trustworthy, then we know that God is a God that we can trust. And knowing in that kind of way is far better than knowing in this kind of way. Amen? You see, it's in that between time that we learn to let go and let God. Any OCD control freaks in the congregation this morning? I know there are more of you than that. You see, God sometimes has to get us in a position and a place where we realize everything is completely out of our control and we have no control in the situation and we let go and finally say, God, I can't do anything about this, but I know that you can. And so it's in that time that we learn to let go and we learn to let God move and work in His way. You see, it's that time between or that between time that conforms us to the nature and the character of Christ. Four times I think it is that Paul says in his letters that that God has predestined the believer to be conformed to the likeness of His Son Jesus. In other words, God has predetermined, if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ and you're born again, God has predetermined that you are going to be conformed to the likeness of of His Son, Jesus, right? You see, all this time you've been trying to do it yourself. But you can't do it yourself. It's something that only God can do in us, and He uses trial and suffering, yes, and even trial and suffering at the hands of someone else. One of the greatest prayers that I've ever heard uttered, I think John F. Kennedy first prayed it publicly, it's called the Serenity Prayer. It's a prayer that many 12-step programs use, and the prayer goes like this. 
God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. God, grant me the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. You see, the truth is, much in our life is completely out of our control. We think we're in control, or we want to control it. But God is the one who is in absolute control, and God desires for us to trust His sovereignty in our lives. You know, Paul said this. He said that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for our salvation, but but work out, live out that which has taken place in our life where we've been transformed, we've been made new creations in Christ. He says, work that out. Work out what God has done in you. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But the verse that we often do not quote, the verse that follows says this, For it is God who works in you to will and do according to His good pleasure. Some of what Paul's saying there, you can't do it. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can do it. And so we allow God to work out, work in us, His will according to that. Then he also reminds them again in verse 8. He says this, the second time. He says, you also be patient and establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. And again, this is not something that we can do on our own, but strength comes in our heart, in the inner man, through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And be strengthened in that and hold on to the fact, realizing that God is in absolute control and there's nothing that I can do about it. Then he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this is the second time he states his phrase. And as James is writing this, He's talking about the literal second coming of Christ. But there's an application that can be made in this. In that while, yes, he's talking about the second coming of Christ where he's going to make all things right. There is an appearance or there are times of appearance in the Christian life where all of a sudden God shows up on the scene. And he's saying, be patient. Recognize that the farmer waits for the right time. He trusts the former and the latter reigns of which he has no control over and realize and understand that God will show up just on time. Somebody say, God is never early and he's never late. Some of our spouses are never early and always late. But God is never early and he's never late. God is always on time. Listen to what the Bible says about the timing of God. Galatians chapter 4, 4, when Paul is talking about the first incarnation of Christ, when, when God sent the little babe Jesus in the manger, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. When it was just the right time, God sent a son. I wonder, why didn't he wait until we had the internet? 
But in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And just as He sent Him the first time in the fullness of time, in His time, He will send Him again the second time in His time. And in our lives, as we're going through circumstances, trials, situations, God will deliver, God will step in. And it doesn't mean that He's inactive in that in-between time. He's working, but we'll see the fulfillment of it just in His time. 1 Timothy 6.15 says that he will display at the proper time, the right time. I always think God is, is, is somehow asleep at the wheel, right? God, I mean, I think right now would be a good time for you to step in. God says, no, 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 no. Jamo, you have a, an earthly perspective, but I have an eternal perspective. You don't know what I'm working, and you don't know that there are things that are, are at stake in this that are far beyond what you could ever understand. And in the right time, I will step in. Titus 1.3, and at the proper time, again, that same word, at the proper time, meaning at the right time. And then I'm reminded of what took place in the Gospel of John. You remember when Jesus' good friend Lazarus? have been stricken ill. And there is disciples that come to him and say, Jesus, Lazarus, this guy that you love, your, your friend, he's, he's ill. And, and, and you can kind of read between the lines there. If you don't come now, he's going to die. And they had witnessed Jesus intervene at times and bring healing and even raise the dead to life. And the Bible tells us in John that after Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick unto death, that he waited where he was for two days until Lazarus had passed. They were upset with Jesus. Sister, Jesus, why didn't you come? <laughs> Can I paraphrase what Jesus is saying? Hey, you have no idea what the Father is going to do. What seems like a terrible situation to you, God has a purpose in it that's going to bring Him glory. And see, sometimes I think it's about my comfort. It's not about my comfort, right? The bottom line is, it's about His glory. And the perspective that I need to gain is that in trial, in suffering, it's not about me. It's all about Him if my life has been given over to Him and surrendered to His will in my life. And then he says in verse 9 this. He says, do not grumble against one another. Any, any of you guilty of grumbling when you're going through trials? <laughs> Especially if the person that you're close to is not having any difficulty in life, right? It's like... Why does she get it so good? And I've got to suffer this. And he says, listen, in the midst of the pressure of trial, do not grumble and complain. And I propose to you, the reason we grumble and complain in the midst of trial is because we really don't believe or trust that God is working behind the scenes and we know that he's got it in control. The other thing is, I think sometimes some folks are just miserable unless they're miserable. <laughs> He says, listen, don't grumble against one another. And this is what was happening. And sometimes we can see how the enemy 
uses this in community especially, whether it's the community of family or the community of a small group or the community of a church body or in a community at large where there is grumbling and complaining and bitterness in the midst of trial. The enemy uses that to separate and he does devastating damage. And so what he's telling us is, listen, look to him and trust him in the midst of this and don't grumble and complain. Don't be distressed. And then he reminds them in verse 10 of the prophets. The first prophet that came to my mind as James writes this in verse 10 where he says, Take the prophets. In other words, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And most of the prophets met a dismal end and doom in their lives. And I think about the prophet Jeremiah who was tagged as the weeping prophet. How would you like to have that nickname? It's recorded in the book of Jeremiah that as Jeremiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom, Israel, which had completely broken their covenant with God and turned from God, and they were worshiping this demonic god, Baal, and they were even beginning to build altars to Baal and sacrificing their own children. And as Jeremiah is preaching and their rebellion, all of a sudden, Jeremiah is receiving the brunt because he's preaching the Word of God, and he goes to God to kind of complain, God, I'm, I'm out here preaching this, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm telling the folks what you want me to tell them, and I'm getting backlash for it. And God says, hey, Jeremiah, I understand, and, and I'm, I, I kind of hate it that you're receiving that, but can I give you some good news? It's only going to get worse. It says, Jeremiah... He says, I want you to go down to this guy's house down the street. And, and he's the potter where, where, where they make pots. And I want you to go there and I want to show you something. So Jeremiah goes to the little house in the village. And he walks in and the potter is there at the potter's wheel. And he's turning and, he, and he's making a pot and he's forming it and he's shaping it. And all of a sudden the potter in his eyes didn't see something that he wanted that he could envision that pot being. So he takes the clay and he smashes the clay to begin to shape it the way that he wants. And God tells Jeremiah, listen, I'm the potter and you're the clay. And I'm going to do whatever is necessary in your life to shape you in the way that you'll most bring me glory. A question comes to my mind. Do I trust my daddy's hands? Do I trust my father's hands? And the only way that I can trust my father's hands in my life is that I have to have the full assurance that He loves me. That there's nothing that goes through His hands, or nothing that comes into my life, that hasn't first been filtered through His loving hands. And I may not understand why it's happening. I may not understand why it happened to me. And I may not understand why it happened to me just as these folks did, especially when they had nothing to do with it. But can we trust our Father's hands? I can remember the darkest period of our lives that we went through. 
for about the first six or eight months, there was something that happened to me that had, it was devastating in my life. It was a job loss, and I had absolutely nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, I was even told by the person that was doing it, listen, I, I'm sorry that you're having to go through this, but this is just going to happen to you. And I'm like, what? So the first six or eight months, I bellyache to God. I read all the purgatory psalms, you know, the ones that say God smite them. You know those? So if David can pray it, I can too. And one morning in my quiet time, it finally hit me where I was complaining about this individual that had done this to me, and God said, time out, J-Mo. He didn't do that to you. I did that to you. That's a sobering thing. And it was at that time that I realized, while, yes, that individual is culpable for what they did, it didn't happen without God's knowledge and without God's will being worked out in the situation, and it flipped. My perspective changed. And I realized that, God, I don't understand all of this, and I don't know why. But my prayer began to be, God, take all this pain, take all of this stuff, and please, please, please grow me in character through it. You see... The most important thing that we can do during the midst of a trial is not try to figure it out on our own. It's not try to take the bull by the horns and make this thing work out. But the greatest thing that we can do in the midst of a trial is to go to God and say, God, would, would you work in me through this? God, would you, would you grow me in such a way that, God, I, I really love you with all my heart, soul, and mind? And, God, grow me in that other command of loving others as I love myself. Don't grumble, the prophets. And then he uses it as a last example, Job. And, of course, we're very familiar with the story of Job. Of, of no fault of his own, right? Satan asked for permission to, to ruin his life. God says, okay, you, you, can, you can ruin his life, but you just can't touch his life. So you know the story. You know all that happens to Job, and he's got those real close friends that come around him and encourage him. <laughs> At the end of it, when Job has had all this discourse with God and he's been extremely vulnerable and honest with God, which is what we should be, he concludes this in chapter 42. He says, God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I want you to know this morning, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care what somebody else has done. God can full, will fulfill His purpose in your life. It can't be thwarted. It can't be undone. 
Then he asks a question in verse 3. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, Job saying, listen, God, I, 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 I said stuff that I was just stupid, right? God, I said some boneheaded things to you. Now I understand. Then I didn't have the understanding, but now I understand. He says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. I don't want you to miss this. You see, especially for those who've grown, those of us who've grown up in church, we, we've heard all about God. We've heard all the stories. We can quote all the verses. We go to church, we give our tithes, we serve in a ministry, whatever. All that stuff. And all that's good. He says, God, I've heard of you. I've, I've heard of your wondrous works. I've heard of your power. I've, I've heard of your... Man, I've, I've just heard that. But now I see you. Do you get what Job is saying? God wants us to see him. God doesn't want us to just know about Him. God wants us to see Him. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.